You know, all of us here are wired with a longing for the transcendent. We all long for something bigger, a meaning that is larger than this materialistic world. Yet it's interesting, in a culture that's increasingly secular, increasingly non-religious, there really is less and less of anything transcendent for people to grab hold of. And so, what remains is the worship of sex. Perhaps the last secular experience of the transcendent. As, as the new atheism has gained ground, as postmodernism and relativism and secularism continue to grow, it's no surprise that, that right along with that, we have become awash in all manner of, of lust and sexual immorality. And yet behind all of that is the massive longing of the human heart for something more. As one author writes, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. What's the answer for a world that is so enslaved to to sexual immorality uh, and along with all kinds of other false idols? Is it it better ad campaigns, new technology, a, a restoration of conservative values? No. The the only answer is found in the one for whom we were made. In our present day, as in every age, we need to recapture a vision of the one true God. But but this can't be the, the thin, puny, grandfatherly view of God that characterizes so much teaching today. No, it has to be the robust, stunning, gripping view of the sovereign, majestic God of the Bible. And this morning, we come to Romans 9 through 11 as Paul pushes back the veil just a bit and gives us a glimpse into that majesty. I want to tell you, we're going to be encountering some heavy truths this morning. And yet my job this morning is not to to reaffirm our small ideas about God. Rather, my job is to expose God's Word to you and to allow it to shock you, to turn our our self-centered worlds upside down with the truth that God has revealed about Himself and the God-centered universe that we live in. I'm going to be honest with you, there, there aren't there, there isn't going to be a lot of practical applications in this sermon in one sense. I'm not going to give you kind of five steps to a better life. But you should realize that right theology is application. Knowing the truth about God is the best application. Because it is as we see and believe in the one true God that we are freed from our, our small obsessions and addictions and fears, and given something, someone bigger to live for. So, turn with me to Romans 9. Romans chapter 9. 
And let me read here just the first few verses to show you where Paul is going in these three chapters. Romans 9, beginning in verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is over all, forever praised. Amen. In the first eight chapters of Romans, Paul has laid out the gospel, the, the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Apart from the law, through faith in Christ, sinners of every kind can be declared righteous before God. God's people are now no longer defined by Jewish identity, but rather by faith in Christ. But as we see, this has created a, a problem. Uh, from, from Paul's day and even up to our present day, the Jewish people have basically rejected that gospel, even while many Gentiles are turning to Christ. So does that mean that God has abandoned His promises to the people of Israel? If Christianity has become basically a Gentile religion, how can it really be the fulfillment of all that God promised to Israel in the Old Testament? You see the tension here. If, in fact, the gospel that Paul was preaching disowned Israel, then it would also disown the very word of God that was given to Israel. And if God has disowned Israel and abandoned his promises to them, then how can we ever be sure that he won't someday do the same to us? It would have been these sorts of objections that Paul would have heard as he preached the gospel which is why right here from the outset in Romans 9, Paul is at pains to assure his readers of his great love for his Israelite brothers and of the fact that their role in redemptive history in being loved and chosen by God and being given the patriarchs and even the Messiah, that all of that is still hugely significant. In other words, no, God has not abandoned Israel. The gospel does not disown Israel. And God will fulfill his promises to them, even if it's not in the way that we expected. So the question I want us to think about this morning is, how do I know that God's word will not fail me? You know, because even though, like I said, Romans 9 through 11 is talking about the people of Israel, this matters because if God has broken his word to them, then then we have no assurance of our own security, our own salvation. So, How can we know that God will be faithful to all that he has promised to us? And I think Romans 9 through 11 gives us three answers. And this is my outline. How do I know God's word will not fail? First, because God is sovereign over salvation. Second, because Jesus saves all who call upon him. And third, because God will be glorified for his mercy. Because God is sovereign over salvation, because Jesus saves all who call upon him, 
and because God will be glorified for his mercy. Oh, I pray that in seeing God's sovereign faithfulness, that we would leave here today with an unshakable hope that God will carry out his good purposes for us. So how do we know God's word will not fail? First, because God is sovereign over salvation. Look, look here in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. And yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The first argument that Paul makes as to why God's promises to Israel have not failed, it is there in verse 6. Not all Israel is Israel. In other words, just because someone is, is biologically descended from Israel doesn't mean that they truly belong to the people of God. So what is it that makes someone part of the true people of God, the true Israel? Well, here is Paul's stunning point. It's not anything they do. But it's ultimately God's electing promise. He begins with the story of Abraham and Isaac. Just because you are physically descended from Abraham doesn't mean that you belong to the spiritual family of Abraham. Even though Ishmael and others were physically descended from Abraham, it was only through Isaac that God's blessings came. Well, but somebody could say, you know, Abraham was married to Sarah. That's why God chose Isaac. Well, so Paul raises a second illustration, Jacob and Esau. Here we have twins, right? Born from the same mother, born at the same time. And before they were born or had done anything good or bad, God reveals to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. This isn't God looking down in history and seeing which one would be good and bad and choosing that one. No, if you know the story, they were both rotten. No, no, this is God choosing to set his favor on Jacob, not Esau. And therefore, it is through Jacob, not Esau, that God's people came. And therefore, Paul observes, not all descendants of Israel are truly Israel. What this is saying is that salvation, that, that belonging to God, is ultimately, ultimately not about human decision or pedigree or behavior or works or goodness, but rather it is grounded in God's free, unconditional, electing love. That doesn't mean that our lives don't matter. 
It doesn't mean that we're not called to respond and repent and believe and obey. But at the end of the day, when you trace it all back, the ultimate cause of anyone's salvation cannot be traced to our actions, but only to God himself. If anyone is saved to belong to the true Israel, it will only happen by God's sovereign choice to save that person. Friends, I don't know about you, but to me, that is startling. And it raises all kinds of questions in my mind. How can God do this? How can God be be sovereign like this and hold us responsible? And if those are the sorts of questions that you're asking, then at least know that you're on the right track because those are the exact objections that Paul goes on to answer. Look at verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? You know, the first objection that Paul deals with is the question of justice, right, there in verse 14. How can God be, be just in doing this? And what Paul reminds us is that when God saves someone, the, the, the issue is mercy, not reward, mercy. It's not that God is choosing to reward, to pay back some and not others. No, no, the issue is mercy. Remember that whether you're dealing with with Isaac or Ishmael, whether Jacob or Esau, whether me or Hitler, what we're dealing with here is a fallen world full of sinful people. When God looks out on the world, what he sees is not a world of of basically good people who, who have earned his favor. No, rather, he sees a world that has allied itself to evil and is an active rebellion against him. And therefore, for God to save anyone is not a right, but mercy. And if we're really talking about mercy, then it has to be free. Sometimes I think we have started to believe that God owes us mercy, that that unless he shows us and all of our best friends mercy, then he cannot be God. But no, if mercy is truly to be mercy, 
then it must come not from us, but entirely from God's free choice. And yet Paul presses further. Because God's sovereignty extends not only in mercy, but also in wrath, as he actively, sovereignly hardens the hearts of some. Whereas mercy is God rescuing sinners from their sin, when God hardens, he he hands sinners over to the bondage of their sin. Why would he do such a thing? Well, as we see here in the life of Pharaoh, he does it in order that his glory might be displayed. God is free in choosing to show mercy to some and being glorified for his imaginable, unimaginable mercy towards sinners. And God is free in choosing to harden the hearts of others in order that through their stubborn rebellion, he might be glorified for his power and his wrath. In other words, dear friends, we don't live in a world where where, where good and evil are two equal forces constantly battling it out, like something out of Star Wars. No, rather, we, we live in a world over which a holy and sovereign God reigns, who ordains both righteousness and sin, both life and death, both good and evil. He does so all for his holy purposes, and he himself remains absolutely holy and righteous. This is not just the teaching of Paul. This is the testimony of the entire Bible. And so we come to the objection of verse 19. Well, well, if God is sovereign even over sin, then, then why are we being held responsible? That is the question, isn't it? Again, if, if you're having these objections, you're, that means you're understanding Paul rightly. The, the Bible so clearly affirms God's absolute, unconditional sovereignty. And at the same time, the Bible clearly affirms that man is morally responsible. How do we bring these two together? Well, Paul doesn't give us an answer, at least not in the way that we would want it, right? Instead, what does Paul do? He, he points us to the godness of God. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? In other words, this is what it means for God to be God. This is what it means for you not to be God. As a potter has the right to do what he wills with his clay, as the composer has the right to do what he wills with his music, as Shakespeare has the right to do what he wills with Hamlet. So God has all rights to do what he wills with us. What Paul is showing us here is not so much a logical answer, but a right perspective of who God is and of who we are. And friends, there is ultimately where we find our rest. 
not in our ability to, to rationalize this perfectly, but in acknowledging and trusting in the God who made us. Don't get me wrong. There are helpful, rational things we can say that help us get closer at the mystery in this question. And we ought to study these things. Actually, let me just make a plug for the discipleship core. We will be studying these things in that time together. So men, come on out for that. But I think that, that this side of heaven, to explain away the tension between divine responsibility and human, uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility with any finality is either to diminish the potter, the author of our lives, or to exalt the clay, we who are formed beyond what we really are. So here it is in Romans 9. God is God. God is sovereign over all things. This is what it means for him to be God. Will you trust him? You know, for Paul, it is trusting that God is sovereign. That's what gives him hope. You know, even in the midst of his anguish over Israel's rejection of the gospel, this is how he knows that God's purposes have not failed. Because if, if God is sovereign, then it's never as if the dark, the dark side has overcome the light side. It's never as if evil is triumphing over good. Yes, there are times of intense darkness. Yes, we ought to grieve when we see sin and suffering. Yes, there are times when we don't understand what God is doing. But if God is sovereign then all that takes place, even Israel's rejection of the gospel, all is part of his sovereign plan. God's word has not failed. What we see here is the truth that salvation belongs to God. And this shouldn't be the source of fear in us, but the ultimate ground of our security. I'm so thankful that salvation does not depend finally on me. Praise God. Because if it did, knowing my, my, my fallibility, my weakness, I would have no security. But if God is sovereign, then when I see evidence of, of genuine repentance and faith in my life, what I'm seeing is not my cleverness, my, my good moral sense, my spiritual intuition. No, what I'm seeing is that God is at work, that God has chosen to show mercy. And therefore, I can be confident that he who began a good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. It's when we come to grips with this reality that we come to see the wonder of what it means that God saves sinners, right? Oh God, you had the right to do with me as you please. You owed me nothing, God. You could have made me an object of your wrath. You, you would have been righteous to glorify 
your justice in that way, but in sheer mercy, due to nothing good in me, you have instead made me an object of your infinite mercy. You have made me a recipient of the riches of your love forever. As Christians, we should ask why. Not why should we be held responsible, but why should God choose to show us such mercy when he didn't have to? As we often sing here, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. How do I know God's word will not fail? Because God is sovereign over salvation and over all things, and therefore his purposes cannot be thwarted. Now a second reason. Because Jesus saves all who call upon him. Look at Romans 10. Verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Look down at verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Now look down at verse 21. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient, and obstinate people. Here in chapter 10, Paul is shifting from, from the sovereign divine purposes of God to what is playing out in human history. Israel has rejected God and his righteousness, and therefore they are responsible and stand condemned for their sin. And at the center of this controversy is the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, was not what the Jewish people were expecting. They were not expecting a crucified Messiah. And so they stumble and they fall. Rather than pursuing their righteousness, 
in Jesus Christ, they continue to try to establish their own righteousness through the law. And so we get to verse 21. Isn't that amazing? Verse 21. That, that, that yes, God is sovereign over sinful unbelief, but there is also a sense in which God holds out his hands to disobedient people. I think of Jesus' words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Though God is sovereign, at the same time God longs for the salvation of his people. And yet Israel is obstinate and refuses to go to him. And so Israel is responsible for their sin, their rejection. What this highlights for us is the immense significance and meaningfulness of human action. I mean, it really matters that Israel has rejected Christ. It really matters that Israel does not have the right combination of knowledge and zeal. It really matters that people of all kinds confess with their mouths and believe with their hearts in order to be saved. It really matters that people call on God and hear the gospel and preach the gospel and send out preachers. Our, lo- our lives, our choices, our actions are immensely significant. What we see here is that though God is sovereign, God has ordained the means through which, through which he works. God is sovereign not only over the outcome, but also through the means by which that outcome comes. Yes, it is God who saves, but God saves through the preaching and hearing and believing of the gospel. Therefore, everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we feel, insofar as it connects with our believing or disbelieving the gospel, then that is of eternal significance. And here, brothers and sisters, is our impetus for evangelism and missions. If anyone ever says to you that, that since God is sovereign, you don't need to share the gospel, just run the other way. Just, just turn around and run. You know, this is what the, the missionary uh, William Carey encountered when he stood up at a minister's meeting to discuss his vision for reaching the lost. A more senior minister shouted, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Well, I'm grateful that Carey did not listen to that man, but listened to Paul instead. When God pleases to convert the lost, he does it through preachers and senders. And so Carey went on to write his famous treatise on Romans 10, entitled, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. That's right. That's right. We have an obligation. We have a responsibility to use means, namely the sending of preachers who will preach the gospel for the salvation of the lost. It's not that our sending 
or our preaching saves anyone itself, but we serve a God who loves to magnify His mercy. And in the hope that we might be used by Him, we press into those areas that are most desperately in need of God's mercy. A right understanding of God's sovereignty doesn't leave us in passivity, but it emboldens us and it inspires our action. This has been the hope of all missionary endeavor down through the ages. Why would William Carey and Adoniram Judson and David Brainerd and Hudson Taylor and Jim Elliott and countless others risk their lives to bring the gospel to people who hate them and are content in their paganism? And why should you go out of your way to build a meaningful friendship with your hostile atheist neighbor? Why should you awkwardly bring up the gospel yet again at that family reunion? Why should you give money and pray and write letters so that our missionaries can bring the gospel to Muslims who are quite content being Muslims? Why should our young people give up promising careers and consider spending their lives bringing the gospel to far-off lands? It's not because salvation is dependent on any of that. No, but it's because we serve a God who is mighty to save and who promises to use His gospel to bring salvation to all, to all who call upon Him. There is no difference. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that includes every single one of us here this morning. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if, if Christianity is simply a, a religious act that you play on the weekends, you need to know that God, in His patience, in His kindness, has brought you to this place. What matters most for you this morning is this gospel message that we find here. You have sinned against God. You have no righteousness on your own to speak of that can commend you to God. And God, being just, He will not overlook sin, but He will condemn and He will punish it. But now, through Jesus Christ, there is a way for you to be declared righteous before God. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life of obedience. He offered that life as a sacrifice on the cross, bearing the judgment and death that we deserved. Now, this is perhaps the most shocking thing about God's sovereignty. The God who ordains all things ordained that salvation should come about through the death of His beloved Son. And the God who deems our human actions as significant proved it by purchasing that salvation through nothing less than the obedient act of Jesus Christ, sacrificing His life on a cross for sinners. By this real obedience and real suffering, Jesus Christ made atonement for sinners like you and sinners like me. How do we know this? Because God raised Christ from the dead, proving His victory over sin. 
And now he holds out mercy for anyone who will place their trust in his son. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This isn't a magic spell. No, this is the response of faith, of belief, of turning away from your self-righteousness and placing your hope, your trust in what Jesus Christ has done for you. Friends, I can't save you. Your parents can't save you. Your spouse can't save you. You can't save you. Only God can save you. And you can call out to him even now. God is sovereign over your life. And in his kindness, he has brought you to this place, to the hearing of this gospel. Whatever decisions you have made in your life to bring you to this place, they were not random chance. No, they were the sovereign orchestration of the hand of a merciful God. And this merciful God has has brought this church into existence. He has assembled these people here, and he has ordained the preaching of this gospel within your hearing. And in God's providence, the mercy of Jesus Christ is being held out to you right now. And your response right now is of eternal importance. Will you look into this further? Will you talk to someone about this? Will you believe? Or will you simply dismiss this? Friend, whatever you choose, you, right now, you are responsible. God holds out his hands to you in mercy. Will you go to him? How do I know that God's word will not fail? It is because Christ will indeed save all who call upon him. And third, finally, God's word will not fail because Christ will be, because God will be glorified for his mercy. Because God will be glorified for his mercy. Look with me in Romans 11, verse 1. <clears throat> I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were grace, if it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain. But the elect did. The others were hardened. Well, having laid the foundation of God's sovereign election, having traced Israel's rejection of the Messiah, Paul now returns to that central question, right? Is the fact that Israel has rejected Christ a sign that God has rejected his people? Paul's answer, by no means. And the reason is because in spite of the fact that Israel as a nation does not believe, 
there is nonetheless a remnant chosen by grace. Just as in Elijah's day, a remnant, the existence of a remnant signifies a future fullness, a future blessing that is to come. A remnant is a kind of down payment of something more to come. Therefore, God has not abandoned his people, but he is fulfilling the warnings of the Old Testament even while he faithfully preserves a remnant. Now, how should Gentile believers think about all this? both in Paul's day and, and really down to our day today. Well, we should look, look then at chapter 11, uh, verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, How much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you, Gentile. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in this kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Let me pause there. Boy, there's so much to talk about here But really, let me just highlight two things. Okay, again, particularly talking to any of us here who are Gentile Christians. That will be many of us, I think. First, be amazed at the kindness of God in grafting you into this olive tree of the people of God. You know, at one point in history, we belonged to the world of Romans 1, a Gentile world given over to sin and darkness. I, I just think about my own life. Not, not many generations ago, my ancestors were, were praying and bowing before the altars of their ancestors somewhere in China. Right? I think about my wife's family. Not many generations ago, my wife's ancestors were probably pagan Visigoths. Or, or, or polytheistic Pictai from Scotland. I know we have people here of, of Swedish and Scandinavian ancestry. Well, your ancestors would have been Vikings, would have worshipped Odin and other gods of Norse mythology. Uh, for those in, a, in this room of, of Native American or African heritage, your ancestors were bowing before the sun 
and worshiping nature and demons. Friends, those are the wild trees that we have come from. But in the mercy of God, through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ down through the ages, by working faith in our hearts to believe and respond, God has, in his mercy, grafted us into the chosen people of God, that family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is nothing in our nature that should cause us to belong to that tree, to the people of God. And yet, through Jesus Christ, we have been made, declared righteous, and we have been grafted in. We, we no longer belong to our former tribe, but we now belong to the people of God. We have come to know the one true God, the Holy One of Israel. And the promises that were made to His people, Israel, now belong to us through Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, be amazed at the kindness of God. But, but secondly, also humbly consider the sternness and severity of God. Because with the rejection of the Messiah, God has brought judgment upon Israel. Stunningly, those who used to be his people, those whom God chose in love, they have now been broken off. In judgment, God has hardened them in unbelief, and they have rejected the gospel century after century. Even as century after century, the gospel has brought salvation to the Gentiles. God has shown mercy on the Gentile world as an act of judgment on Israel so that Israel might be stricken with envy. Friends, tremble at the sternness of God. The prophets had always talked about Israel being a light and blessing to the nations, but who would have thought that this would have happened through their unbelief and judgment? So, if you are a Gentile Christian, take the warning here really seriously. If you are someone who has been grafted into the people of God, don't take your position for granted. Don't be passive in your faith thinking that salvation is, is like a natural, easy thing. Don't think that it is a small thing that God has brought you to belong to his family. Just ask Josh Sofer and Jews for Jesus and, the, and those Messianic brothers and sisters, Messianic Jews, brothers and sisters, who labored to share the gospel among a Jewish people hardened in unbelief and who see so little fruit. Oh, friends, tremble at the severity of God. And yet, this hardening of Israel is not the end of the story. All along in this chapter, we see that in verse 12 and 15, here in verses 23 and 24, Paul has been hinting at a future for Israel. And now, in 25, he unpacks it. Look at verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who are at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become obedient. 
in order that they too, disobedient, in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Now, theologians hold a a number of different interpretations as to what's going on here. Uh, And the main question surrounds there in verse 26, right? Who exactly is all Israel? I don't have time to unpack all these views. You'll hear my view shortly. But, But regardless of what your view is, what all theologians agree on is that Paul's main point here is that God indeed has not abandoned Israel because all Israel will be saved just as he promised. The Deliverer will come from Zion, and He will bring salvation to His people. God will be faithful to His promises. But the question remains, what does it mean that all Israel will be saved? Here in verse 25, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to reveal a mystery, an insight into the previously hidden purposes of God. And what is that mystery? that the hardening of ethnic Israel is not the end of the story. Rather, that this hardening of ethnic Israel, that that ethnic Israel is currently experiencing, will only occur until, until the full number of Gentiles is saved. And when that happens, the hardening of Israel as a nation will be lifted. And just as we have seen a harvest among the Gentile world, so we will at that time see an unprecedented number of conversions to Jesus Christ from Israel. I want to be clear here on one point. Some people have used this passage to talk about a separate way of salvation for Israel. In our post-Holocaust age, after having suffered so much under anti-Semitism, there's a real reluctance on the part of some Christians to say that Jews must believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. But that's not what we see here, is it? Paul has already made it so clear in Romans 10 that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, that only those who call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, will be saved. And as we see here in chapter 11, there is only one tree of the people of God. If Israel is to be saved, it is only by faith in Jesus Christ, by being grafted back into that same tree, the same way the Gentiles were grafted back in. And so if there is to be this unprecedented end times conversion of the people of Israel, it will only happen as it has happened among the Gentiles, through faith in Christ. And that's what Paul seems to be saying that will happen. And when that day comes, it will bring about the end. This is what Paul is talking about in verses 12 and 15. If Israel's transgression meant riches for the world, then how much greater will their fullness bring? If Israel's rejection meant the reconciliation of the nations to God, then what will their restoration be but life from the dead? In other words, this lifting of the hardening and turning of Israel back to God, this will signify the end of the age, the return of Christ, and the ushering in of God's kingdom. And so when we look at verses 30 and 32, we can chart human history in basically four stages, right? The, the, the time, first of all, of, of Gentile disobedience, the, that time in history 
when the whole world was sinking deeper and deeper into darkness and sin, God is hardening the nations and hardening Pharaoh, handing them over to their sin and idolatry, even while he's revealing himself to a chosen people, Israel. Second, a time of Jewish disobedience. The Messiah has come, but the Jewish people have rejected him. And as a result, God hardens Israel, and the gospel is pushed out to all the nations. And now, a time of mercy to the Gentiles, where God is showing mercy to the nations. He's lifting the hardening from the Gentile world, and Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, and nation are turning to Christ being grafted into the people of God. And the, and, the, and the day is coming when a time of mercy to the Jews will also come. When the full number of the Gentiles are brought in, God will lift the hardening on Israel. And an unprecedented number of Jews will turn to Jesus Christ and be grafted back into the tree and be saved, bringing in the end of the age. Why go through all this trouble? God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. In other words, listen to this. In other words, the meaning of the universe, the purpose for which this world was created, is the display of God's mercy. Human history, from beginning to end, exists in order that God might display the riches, the beauty the majesty of his mercy. Friends, whether you know it or not, this is the meaning of your existence. This is the meaning of the world that you live in and of the life that you've been given. Your birth, your heritage, your family, your background, your education, your personality, your sinful tendencies, your gifts, your death, your eternity, all of this exists for God. And whether you know it or not, whether you mean for it or not, your life will serve his sovereign purpose one way or another. Either to shine as the recipient of God's mercy or to serve as the dark backdrop of God's wrath on which his mercy shines. I don't know how else to say this. God will triumph in the end. His purposes will prevail. God's mercy will be glorified. And in his amazing love, he has, he has brought you here this morning in order to hear the gospel. He has not done so for everyone. He didn't have to do this for anyone. But he has done so for you. Therefore, receive his mercy in Jesus Christ. He holds out his hands to you this morning. Will you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for sinners? And will you be saved? In the end, human history will be ordered in such a way so that all of humanity will stop and be shocked that such mercy would ever be shown. Just as Gentile Christians were shocked that such grace should be poured out on the Gentiles in the book of Acts, so the day is coming when we Gentile Christians will be shocked to see such grace poured out so abundantly on the nation of Israel. And once God's mercy has been so lavished on all peoples and so glorified, then the end will come. 
this chapter of human history will have fulfilled its purpose and it will come to an end. And God only knows what everlasting glories the next chapter will bring. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we confess this morning that your ways are not our ways. Father, we confess that we are humbled by our smallness before you. And that just reveals what big thoughts we used to have of ourselves and what small thoughts we used to have of you. Oh God, we shape our minds, we shape our hearts, cause us to to understand what it means for you to be God. And therefore that we would be that much more amazed that you have shown us so much love in the gospel. God, we pray that the result of this sermon would be that we would cling to Jesus Christ even tighter, knowing that he is our only hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.